me. In Philippians chapter 4, Apostle Paul writes, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into fellowship with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Philippians. We believe it has been and is a means of grace to your people. And Lord, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with our spirits today as we complete our time in Philippians. We pray, Lord, that today your spirit would move in such a way that it would have a a transforming effect on us as we are progressively and continuously conformed to the image of your Son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Russell Conwell, a Baptist preacher and the first president of Temple University, one evening in a service, asked people who had, through the years, given sacrificially and tithed to their local church. And there were seven who stood that evening and the first six gave remarkable testimonies of God's provision and grace. The seventh lady who stood, though, an older lady, she wasn't so optimistic. In fact, she spoke with regret. Here's what she said. I wish I could bear such testimony, but I can't. I have skimped and saved and denied myself through the years to keep a vow made to tithe my income. But now I am old and I'm losing my job. I have no means of support. I don't know what I shall do. And she sat down and the service ended on a downer, to say the least. The next day, Conwell appeared... uh, he, He... He met with this business executive named John Wanamaker to talk about employee benefits as Conwell was the president of Temple University. And so he was talking to this executive about the benefits offered to his employers. And Wanamaker said to Conwell, you know, I think you'll be interested to know that we're about to inaugurate a pension system for our employees The plan has been worked out, and we're to issue our first life pension today to a woman who has served us for 25 years. And he mentioned her name, and it was the same woman who had given that pessimistic testimony the evening before. You know, you can't outgive God. The more you test Him on this, and that's the one area we're told to test God... Malachi 3.10. And the more he tests us in that. We see that in the wilderness wanderings, don't we? As God's people are told only to collect enough manna for the day. God is testing them. 
So the more we test God, the more he tests us in this area, the more we learn progressively and experientially that God provides. You can't outgive him. But the significance of kingdom giving goes beyond just learning that God provides. We see today that it's a critical aspect of what Paul calls true fellowship. The word being koinonia. The Philippians were a case in point. This was a church that Paul had described earlier in 2 Corinthians in this way. About six years earlier, he had described the Philippians in 2 Corinthians 8 this way. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. Remember how this entire chapter, chapter 4 of Philippians, began with rejoice in the Lord. Joy being the fuel. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed like a river overflowing its banks in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. He was a personal beneficiary of that. And beyond their means... Of their own accord. Wasn't out of compulsion. Notice verse 4. Begging us earnestly. For the part. Or for the favor of taking part. In the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected. But they gave themselves. First to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. Note there's Joy. And they gave themselves first to the Lord. And that joy and them giving themselves, consecrating themselves to the Lord, it goes public in the area of sacrificial giving. In fact, note verse 4, he says, taking part in the relief of the saints. That's the word koinonia. Fellowshipping, in other words, in the relief of the saints. But the best of men are still men at best. And now these Philippians need apostolic encouragement to persevere because of the costliness of their kingdom sacrifice. Indeed, we see at the very beginning of this passage that fellowship is a costly endeavor. Notice with me in verse 14... Of our passage. He says. Yet it was kind of you. To share my trouble. Paul says it's a kind thing to share. In one another's troubles. The word share there. Means to partner together. And again. That word the root is koinonia. That's the word for fellowship. In this case. They are fellowshipping with Paul and his trouble. Of course, we know the trouble. He's in prison. He's in jail. He is awaiting a hearing before Nero. He's been falsely accused. And not only that, he's in there on his own dime. Acts chapter 28, verse 30. And so Paul is ending this letter the same way he began this letter. 
If you'll remember, uh, when we began this in February, we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says, I thank my God, verse 5, because of your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What was the first day? The day he came there to Philippi and preached the gospel. People were saved and a church was formed from that day. Grace came down. Generosity went out from that first day. And then he says, you are all, verse 7, partakers with me of grace. Again, the word fellowship. You are fellowshippers with me of grace. And we saw even then that from a Christian perspective, this fellowship stems from our collective participating in Christ by the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1. So it is a people who collectively participate in our union in Christ together and all the the resources and the benefits that flow out of that by the Spirit. But the concept of fellowship is often misunderstood, isn't it? When we think of fellowship, we think of having a meal together. And that may be part of fellowship. A fellowship may break out of that. But just having a meal together is not New Testament fellowship. Having coffee together is not New Testament fellowship. All of those things are important and beautiful. But in the New Testament, the word fellowship, Koinonia had commercial overtones. For example, if Peter and John purchase a boat for their fishing company, they have entered into a fellowship, a partnership together. And so the core of fellowship is the self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That's what the core of fellowship is. It's a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That is biblical fellowship. So by giving sacrificially to the Apostle Paul, the Philippians were partnering with Paul in his kingdom gospel ministry. And it wasn't new. As we saw... In chapter 1, from the very moment he came to Philippi and led them to Christ, they began to partner with him. But we see in verse 15 of our passage, it says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... Now, what is that referring to? Well, the beginning of when they heard and believed the gospel. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. It's a remarkable passage. In the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, Macedonia being where Philippi is, no church entered into partnership. There's the word, fellowship. No church entered uh, into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so again... Paul remembers that they sacrificed for his work after he left Philippi and went 95 miles or so to to Thessalonica. And these were financially impoverished Christians. But they repeatedly sent representatives 
to Thessalonica with gifts to meet Paul's gospel kingdom ministry needs. And then when he left Macedonia, they continued to give. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing to a much wealthier church, the Corinthians. He says, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That should have been very convicting for the Corinthians because they were much more wealthy than the Philippians. But these less affluent believers met his needs so that he didn't have to ask for anything from the Corinthians. Unfortunately, the Philippians were a gross exception. Again, notice in verse 15, no church, no church entered into partnership, again, the word fellowship, With me in giving and receiving, except you, the Philippians. In other words, there were churches benefiting from apostolic ministry without assuming the stewardship responsibility of sacrificial giving. Reminds me of a study that KBC just recently published. And in this study, it showed that today, older Christians, older members, and I was supposed that they're referring to retired members, members who've been retired from their jobs, they only make up 19% of Southern Baptist membership, but they give 46% of the offering. Now, if you know, if you spend any time with a person who's been retired, uh, they may not have children at home that they're having to take care of, but they're living on retirement. And so their income generally is not as robust as those who were in their working years. And yet they give 46% of the giving in Southern Baptist life. And every generation is giving less than the previous generation. And the article calls this a silent tsunami on the church and on the Great Commission. You know, God the Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write this Because the Lord is rescuing the people of God from this natural tendency towards a non-sacrificial understanding of fellowship. To a sacrificial understanding of fellowship. We don't see a command to obey here. But God is on a rescue mission. Because naturally we don't want to sacrifice anything. We want fellowship without sacrifice. Of course, that involves more than money. But it certainly doesn't involve less. Because where our money goes is a telltale sign of where our Messiah resides. Giving is a gauge that shows you where your heart is. And where your heart is, is where your hope is. Your Savior is. 
But Paul's going to add a disclaimer here that I think helps us develop a a theology of giving, a, a theology of fellowship for that matter. Notice in verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's overarching concern isn't their money. You know why? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And there have been times here that we've had people leave the church in, a, in, a, in anger, frustration. And I've had people tell me, that's going to hurt our budget. It never has. Because you can't outgive God. He is Lord of the church. Paul recognized that if the Philippians didn't give to him, God would still resource him. Because his hand was on him. He was grateful for their gift, but his overarching concern was not their gift. Paul did not have a utilitarian understanding of friendship and fellowship. As Aristotle says, most people think of friends as being those who are useful to us. Not Paul. He makes clear that He's not in this relationship for what he can get from the Philippians. He, he wants fruit that swells their account. But not their account towards him. Their account towards God. And that word fruit, he's making a, a direct connection between a prayer he prayed. And in chapter 1, where he prayed in verse 11, that they would be filled... With the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is his prayer for them. And that fruit's always going to go public. Now think about that. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now when you trust in Christ. When you recognize you're a sinner. And that you deserve the judgment of a good God. A good judge. But that this good judge, this good God has made provision for your sin by sending his son to fulfill all righteousness in his obedience before the father in our place. And then this good son dies on the cross, taking the judgment we deserve and being raised from the grave for our pardon. When you trust in Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, credited to you. It's not your righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. And now you stand before God with a perfect righteousness. That's the righteousness you need to stand before him. Because his his requirements are perfection. And yet the moment you're justified, God the Spirit begins to dwell in you. And God the Spirit begins to work righteousness in you. That's the practical righteousness. Sanctification. Our justification is proved by our practical righteousness. Sanctification. And Paul is praying for that fruit. That fruit of righteousness to come to full bloom for those who are in Christ. To the glory and praise of God, he says. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, Not that I seek the gift. I seek the fruit that increases to your account. The evidence that you've truly been saved. And this fruit is preparing them for the day where they will be held accountable before God. But the enjoyment of that fruit doesn't just wait until that day. 
That fruit has great benefit today. You, there's the, the good conscience that comes from sacrificial giving. There's the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's an increase in love because as you love people, your love for them increases. There's the benefit of meeting need. There's the benefit of carrying out the Great Commission. All of these benefits that come from sacrificial giving. And this benefits the church. It benefits the ministries of various missionaries and missions. But ultimately, it pleases God. Notice with me in the second part of our verse 18, our second point, fellowship. Yes, it's a costly endeavor, but it's also a pleasing endeavor. Notice in verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. Again, he's writing from a prison. He has to pay to be in that prison out of his own pocket. And Epaphroditus has brought him resources from these believers in Philippi. He says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now there is a penultimate and an ultimate reason to give. The penultimate reason is need. Need. The Great Commission has to be resourced by monetary funds. And the Philippians had met Paul's need. Notice he says, I am well supplied. But the ultimate reason is to please God. That's why when we ask you at Lottie Moon season to give to missionaries you've never met. Unless you've been overseas and you have met these missionaries, it's hard to be motivated to give sacrificially, especially at Christmas time, to missionaries you've never met. But that's not even the most important reason you give. The most important reason you give is that it pleases God. Notice this language of fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, from the day that Noah presented... A burnt offering to God. After he was saved from the flood, he was out of the ark. He offers this burnt offering, Genesis 8, 21. And the language there is a fragrant offering to God. We, we see that very phrase over and over again in the Old Testament. In fact, you see it in Ephesians chapter 5. Where Paul says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children... And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now that's a remarkable phrase because just like with Noah, when he offered up his sacrifice, it was not in order to get saved. He was already saved. It was a sacrifice of gratitude and worship because God had saved him. Well, the reason God had saved him and the way God saves him is because later, thousands of years later, the Christ would come. And the Christ would offer his body 
as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, the once for all sacrifice. And because of that once for all sufficient sacrifice, the literal offerings of the Old Testament system are done away with. But the principle behind them remain of offering yourself, your resources as a fragrant offering to God. Not in order to earn favor, but because you have favor. Again, grace comes down, gratitude goes up, and generosity flows out. That's the order. If there's no generosity and there's no gratitude, the question is, have you experienced grace? Or have you gotten over grace? No, our costly devotion, our costly giving does not score points with God. We give sacrificially because God gave his son for us, the ultimate sacrifice. And now we give back to him as an act of worship and gratitude. But be aware that when you give sacrificially, like the Philippians, who gave beyond their means... Out of their affliction, out of their poverty, you may subject yourself to financial vulnerability. Indeed, they had. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. I robbed other churches. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He's writing to the wealthy Corinthian church. And he says, I robbed other churches. Now, we've already learned that the principal church that was giving was the Philippians. He said, no other church participated. And so this is the principal church he's referring to when he says, I robbed other churches. He didn't go in with a gun. Paul knew that they were giving beyond their means. And they were begging to do so. And that's why he uses that language. But it's to those very believers who've made themselves vulnerable by their sacrificial giving. And by the way, I have to say this. I've never seen a giving statement here. Not godly enough for that. I've never seen a check. I've never seen what anyone gives here. Ever. Not in eight and a half years of pastoring here. But I do know this. There are sacrificial givers here. It's evident by the fact that in eight and a half years, 830,000 dollars of debt has been paid off. While Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong are missions giving and are giving to various missionaries, Utah and Germany. Have gone through the roof. And so I, I, I can't tell you how grateful to God I am for you. Because I know that kind of giving has placed many of you in a place of financial vulnerability. And that's the point. Just like Israel. Only gather enough for the day. Because I'm showing up again tomorrow. Tomorrow. That's what God would teach them in the wilderness. 
And it's to you the promise of 19 is made. We see in verse 19 that this kind of fellowship, this costly fellowship that costs you, is a resourced endeavor. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This has been called, and I think rightly so, the song of contentment. If I don't have something, it's clearly not a need. My God shall supply all my needs. That's the song of contentment. Having said that, this verse has often been misunderstood. This is not advocating a prosperity gospel. Where you have given this, God is now in a contract with you. A transaction has been made where he's going to give you this, some kind of cookie-cutter deal. Where you'll never be sick again and you'll never be poor again. That's not what this is promising. And it's also not promising that God will resource your greeds. It's promising he will resource your needs. This is not referring to material desires. This is referring, he says, to needs. And it's not just physical needs. The promise of verse 19 cannot be separated. Again, this is why expository preaching is so important. Because you take this verse out of context and you can create a reality of your own. That produces cults or great disappointment and heartache at God. I do this for you, God, you're going to do this for me. No, you're using God with that mentality. God is not your butler. He's the end. Verse 19 cannot be separated from verse 13. Where Paul says, I can do all things Through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. And verse 13 cannot be separated from verses 11 and 12. Where Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. When I abound and when I am low. Certainly verse 19 allows for the very real possibility that God will meet material, physical needs. But God also supplies our needs in other ways. By giving us the resources to cope with the test of both poverty and prosperity. This includes joy. Giving us joy in the midst of the the circumstance, giving us peace, giving us contentment. All of those things we, we find in chapter 4. And this, the context of this verse, this is important. The context of this verse indicates that this promise is not carte blanche. It, it, it is for those Who have needs created by sacrificial generosity 
towards the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that God won't meet the needs of those who don't give sacrificially to the, the, to the kingdom of God. I'm just saying that's not the context here. Verse 19 is a promise to these Philippian believers who have made themselves financially vulnerable because they give beyond their means. That's the context. You, there's no other context than that. And there's another implication. God's promise to meet our needs is always for a purpose. And it's not so that we can live it up. Again, 2 Corinthians 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Paul is having to convince the Corinthians to give. And that's why he uses the Philippians as his example. The Corinthians are wealthier and they give less. And that's all the studies show that today. If you do a study analysis of tithing states, the wealthier the state, the less they give. The more impoverished the state, the more they give. It's remarkable to see that analysis. And he's, he's seeking to convince the Corinthians to give to this collection that he is gathering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Notice how often the word all there is found. You may abound in every good work. So the promise of verse 19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Is that God will provide our needs when our needs have come because we are sacrificially giving to the Lord. J.H. Pickford in one of his books makes this penetrating statement. What grounds have we to lay hold of this promise to supply our needs? If we have refused to supply the needs of God's work and we've had the means. It's a good question. With what confidence can we pray for the Lord to honor us with substance if we've not honored him with substance that he's already given? And how does God carry out this promise? Notice, according to his riches. Let's just read that slowly. According to his riches in glory. Remember, our citizenship is in heaven. And so the math of heaven is different than the math of the mind. His riches are in heaven. According to his riches in glory. Notice, in Christ Jesus. So the reality that his riches are in glory are and are in Christ Jesus teaches us in whom and in how those riches are dispensed to God's people. Every need is met through the mediation of the Son of God. Now I make this point for this reason. One of our biggest problems is seeking unmediated blessing. We go horizontal looking for peace. 
when Christ is the mediator of peace. We go horizontal looking for joy when Christ is the mediator of joy. We go horizontal looking for contentment when Christ is the mediator of contentment. Every blessing, every blessing that can fill the soul is mediated through the Son of God. Remember what we read from the Puritan last week. Our souls were made for God, which means only God can fill our souls. And thought of that, truth provokes Paul to worship. Fourth point we see here in verse 20. Fellowship is a worship-fueled endeavor. It's a resourced endeavor, but it's also a worship-fueled endeavor. Notice in verse 20. And what is Paul doing? He's encouraging the saints. They have been giving sacrificially, and at the end of the day, they need encouragement. He's leading them back to the throne room. He says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is an immediate response to verse 19. God's going to provide in Christ. Praise be to God. But it's also a concluding response to all that he has written in Philippians. For instance, in Philippians 1-2, Paul tells us that God the Father is the giver of grace. In Philippians 1-6, he is the worker of salvation. He who began a good work in you will complete it. In Philippians 2-9-11, he's the exalter of Christ. God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. In chapter 2, verse 13, he is the conformer of Christ's likeness in us. In chapter 3, verse 15, he is the revealer of truth, God the Father. In chapter 4, verse 7, he is the giver of peace, the peace of Christ. And in chapter 4, verse 19, he is the supplier of need. Indeed, he's worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise. We have to meditate on these things because we get dull in our praise, don't we? When we're dull in our praise, it's because our eyes have become dull to what he's done for us. And vertical worship always goes horizontally as love. That brings us to the next point in verses 21 and 22. Fellowship is a worship-fueled endeavor, but it's also a loving endeavor. Look with me in verse 21. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. I don't think Paul is just closing out a letter by being courteous. I think he's giving them an example of what this life he's referring to looks like. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Chapter 1 verse 27. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Note this language of every saint. This underscores how much Paul loved every individual. We, we pass each other in the church, don't we? We tend to only to, to, to speak and get to know the people that are in our Sunday school classes, for instance. Notice, every saint, this is an inspired inspired example for us all. Notice, the brothers who are with me. When you study the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 
and Philippians, you can gather there were at least eight that were with Paul at some point in those two years of imprisonment. At this present moment, we know Timothy's with him. We know Epaphroditus is with him. But we, we look at those other letters and we know that at some point in those two years, Luke was with him, Aristarchus was with him, Onesimus was with him. There were at least eight that had been with him during those two years. He's giving us a picture of what this costly fellowship is. These people are identifying with him in his suffering. And now he's going to expand the circle in verse 22. He says, all the saints greet you. The saints in Rome. Who are these saints in Rome? Well, he had written to the Romans about three, and four, three to four years earlier. And if you read chapter 16, you got this amazing theological treatise. But at the last chapter, he just throws out names. He's throwing out names to believers in Rome that he never met. He was planning to come to them. And he did in chains. God's providence is unique and surprises us, doesn't it? And when he got there, he had a fellowship. You know, I'll hear people say, well, I I couldn't go to this class or I couldn't go to this church because I couldn't find fellowship. That's not the gospel way. You don't find fellowship, you create it. You create it by your cruciform love in the power of the Spirit. That's how Paul did it, because he followed Christ. Christ didn't find fellowship when he came. He created it by his cruciform love, love in the shape of the cross. This is fellowship. And finally, notice he says, don't overlook this. This is powerful, what he says here. Especially those of Caesar's household. Really? There's believers in Caesar's household. Who are they? Well, we're reading between the lines, but I can assure you. There was a revolving group of soldiers... The elite soldiers in Caesar's household who were chained to Paul for two years. And I can assure you that in those two years, he didn't keep his mouth shut. Remember what he said in 2 Timothy? He speaks from experience. He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am being chained like a criminal. But God's word isn't chained. He had learned from experience that he may be chained, but God's word isn't chained. And so every new guard who was chained to him, Paul said, thank you. Thank you. And he preached. Now I'm envisioning this, but somebody was getting saved in Caesar's household. And who did he have contact with? These guys he was chained to. And they were taking that gospel back into the palace, the lion's den. Can you imagine how encouraging this would have been to the Philippians? This little throwaway line that we just kind of read over in a quick nanosecond. They're giving sacrificially to Paul. It's placing them in a financial vulnerable state. And Paul says, you've been giving to me. And God is turning Rome upside down as a result. Starting in Caesar's palace. Finally, we see that grace, our fellowship, is a grace-motivated endeavor. It's the last verse. The last verse of this letter you could meditate on all week. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What is your spirit? That's not referring to the Holy Spirit. It's referring to your inner man, the causal core of your being. You know, you've heard it said, God will not call you to to do anything you can't do. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. Everything he calls you to will fail apart from his grace. Apart from his life-giving spirit. Philippians exists for grace. Paul began with this salutation of grace. From God our Father, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's ending with a prayer for grace. Grace to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether I'm with you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. That you are striving together in one spirit with one mind. Side by side. For the faith of the gospel. But you'll need grace for that. The grace of our Lord Jesus, the mediator of that grace. Grace as you put Philippians away today and go celebrate Labor Day. Grace to go back into the work world on Tuesday with all the temptations of anger and discontentment and lust. Grace to fellowship with God's people in a sacrificial, costly way. That will make you feel vulnerable. Philippians is a means of grace. But Christ is the mediator of that grace. And another means of grace is the table. The Lord's table. It's what we see.